Let's bow together. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this wonderful day that uh, you have made. And uh, let us rejoice in it and be glad that uh, you have sent your son Jesus to die for our sins. And he willingly came, died on the cross and rose from the dead and is at your right hand. And Father, we thank you that uh, we now, because of Christ, can worship you and we can also grow in our relationship with you, grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, Jesus. And I pray as we look into your word, you'd grant us understanding to what you intended and that you would work in our hearts uh, what needs to be done so that we would be more like your Son, Jesus. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, if you've been in the church for very long, uh, and I mean not just the church in general, like the church building or anything, I mean the body of Christ. If you've come and been part of the body of Christ, you because you're in Christ, and you've met together, assembled together, you've been fellowshipping together, then you will realize at times you will come across those who are not in step with a walk with Jesus. That there are things that are out of line with what one should be doing in accordance with the Word of God. And it's obvious to everyone that something is wrong in that person's life. Now, I'm not talking about gross immoral sin or or something that would be obviously uh, that which would call upon us to address it biblically uh, for the sake of that person, but yet a walk that is out of order, that is out of line. Well, what are we to do biblically when we see that? What are we to do in love when we see such a situation? Well, today we're going to see with how to, we're going to see how to deal with those who are unruly in the body of Christ or out of order. And we're going to see that we are going to be loving, we should lovingly admonish, and there may be the necessity for separation that shames. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we are rapidly coming to the close of this book. Um, I'm thinking we will finish next Sunday. That's what it looks like. And so I'll be praying for uh, what we will do next. But as we come to this last teaching portion before the end of the book, and there is teaching in that, but this specifically about specific issues, um, I want to share the context uh, with us again. Now we know the Apostle Paul was writing a church that is less than a year old in the faith. And when we went through our first Thessalonians study, you might remember that Acts 17 reveals the account of their, uh, of their salvation. Uh, that Paul came there and he was there three weeks and he shared the word of God. And yet the Jews of the city were so enraged about his teaching concerning Jesus, the Christ, the King, that they created a riot and he then fled to Berea and then Athens. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, we have the account of their conversion, where after hearing the gospel, they responded powerfully. They turned to God uh, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The reality is they turned to Christ. They believed the word. They believed uh, what God said. They took it at chapter 2 as the word of God and not the word of men. The word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. Now, after having come to faith, uh, the Apostle Paul, having left there, was concerned about their spiritual condition. 
He knew the tempter would try to tempt them. He knew they were being persecuted. So he sent Timothy to check in on them as to their faith. And he sent that to Timothy. And when he, Timothy came back with the report, that was this first letter of Thessalonians and the response. And he did that from Corinth around 50 AD. Now we see in 2 Thessalonians that the same three people are together in chapter 1. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. So that means that it is apparent it is less than a few months from the first letter and less than a year from when they came to faith. And so 1 and 2 Thessalonians are to new believers, but yet as we see here, there's much truth that is written to these believers who are very young in the faith. And Paul launches into some serious teaching and doctrine. So what prompted the writing of 2 Thessalonians? Well, in first chapter 1, we see that he wanted to encourage them because they were trusting Jesus and they were loving one another. He wanted to encourage them to endure the persecution that they were going through. They were being afflicted. And so Paul writes, inspired by the Spirit, to share that God hasn't missed a beat, that those who are afflicting them will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord when he comes in his glory. The reality is they're suffering, but God is going to bring back retribution upon those who are persecuting these Thessalonians. And yet these Thessalonians are on their way to glory. And so they should be encouraged in the midst of that suffering. It's temporal And don't be discouraged. The Lord's going to take care of those who have rejected him. And he has counted you worthy to suffer for his kingdom. You're going to make it. He's going to come. And he will be glorified in his saints. And you will marvel when he comes. So be encouraged. So be encouraged. And then in the end of chapter 1, we were greatly encouraged by Paul's prayer where he desires that in the Lord that we live up to our great calling and that all of our desires for goodness and our faith for, for our faith to be worked out powerfully in him would be fulfilled so that Christ would be glorified in, in us and we in him all by his grace. Then coming into chapter 2, we see how to keep from being discouraged when there are threats to our faith. And there were threats. There were false teachers, false uh, brethren who were putting out a narrative, whether by letter or message or whatever it might be, as even if from Paul, that the day of the Lord has come. And what does that mean? That means if the day of the Lord has come, you Thessalonians have missed the rapture. You have missed the deliverance from God's wrath and you are going through it right now. But that's not true. The apostle Paul shares the two things that must happen uh, for the day of the Lord to come. And they haven't happened. One would be the apostasy And the second one would be that the man of lawlessness is revealed. And we saw that in the middle of the tribulation that he would be revealed. But first, the restrainer must be removed. The one who restrains, that's the Holy Spirit through the church, which restrains the Antichrist in a sense. And then, although it's a mystery, this lawlessness is already at work. This mystery of lawlessness And so those who didn't believe the truth, they would go on to be deceived into their own judgment because they took took pleasure in wickedness and didn't believe and love the truth. Then then they would eternally be judged uh, and pay the penalty of the lake of fire, having rejected the only provision for salvation, Jesus Christ. And then we saw what God does when we stand firm and hold to his word 
that he has already given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace through his word by his spirit, but yet he will comfort our hearts and strengthen us for every good work and deed. A really encouraging uh, passage. And then in chapter 3, we saw from Paul's example how we are to pray for our leaders. We're to pray that the word would go forth rapidly and be glorified like it was with the Thessalonians and that it would be honored and exalted in the response, that people would respond to the word of God. And also, we should be praying for one another that we would be rescued from perverse and evil men, fakers who do not truly have faith. So pray for protection of your leaders and pray for one another. You see, the Lord is faithful, and he's going to establish and protect us from the evil one. And then we saw last time when we came to Second Thessalonians that we had encouragement for the suffering to continue to obey his word. And Paul was confident. He was confident that these Thessalonians had been obeying and that they would continue to obey the word of God. And this lays the framework for this last exhortation to address an issue that Paul had heard about in the body of Christ. It's an issue regarding some people in the body's walk that was out of step. And Paul had to address it. And so he knows that they've been obeying and that they will obey. And here he comes with his commands. And so today we're going to see how we are to deal with the unruly in the body of Christ. Let's take a look at our passage. I'm going to read through the whole thing and then we'll get to the parts within it. Verse 6 of chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians. Now we commend you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother." Now, this is a long passage, but within this, it's, there's a lot of uh, dialogue here, in a sense, from Paul, and I think it's very understandable, and I think we can understand the main point today as we walk through it. And so as we look at this, we're going to see uh, very clearly some issues that have to do with work and that have to do with the idea, possibly, of church discipline. 
And so, as I've shared before, I've already gone through Titus chapter 2 and also Matthew 18, so I'm not going to enter into all those questions in this message. You can look back in those sermons if you have questions about the work relationship. I go in depth there, and also Matthew 18, but we will touch on it a little bit as we walk through this passage today. So with that in mind, first of all, in our passage, we have really an overview of what Paul is commanding them. We see that first of all, that they are to stay away from every, every brother uh, who lives an undisciplined life, not according to the word of God, not according to the word of God. And Paul had heard that there were some who were doing so. And so he shares these commands. Now, before I begin, I want to point out the structure of this passage. In verse 6, we have Paul's command to the body to keep aloof from those who are disobedient. Somewhat of an overview. Then in verses 7 to 11, we have an explanation why, indicated by the words for in verses 7, 10, and 11. And then in verse 12, we have a command for the disobedient. And then in verses 13 to 15, we have specific commands For the body. That's the way this is laid out. And so first of all, let's look at an overview where we have Paul's command. Verse 6 again. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you have received from us. Now the NASB translates this first conjunction day in Greek, now, but it could be translated but or and... And so what's the point? It's connected to what was previously said. It's connected. You see, Paul laid the foundation for his confidence. Paul thinks the best before he sees what if, if there is the worst. He assumes they're going to do the best. And so we see that, look back in verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing well and will continue to do what we command. We've got confidence you're obeying and you will continue to obey. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the implications that you would obey him because you love him and the steadfastness of Christ that you would trust him and endure and thus in the context of obeying the word of God. And then he says, and we command you or but we command you or now we command you, brethren. So then we have this command here. Now, the word command here is very strong. It's very strong. It means to charge. Uh, it's a strong sense of the word command. He is commanding the brethren. These are believers in Jesus Christ in the church of Thessalonica. They are brothers and sisters in Christ who have come to faith, obviously, in Jesus Christ, and thus have been adopted in the family of God. And notice what he says. We command you, we, we, we charge you... Brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is speaking in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are, they are being commanded. Now this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, is significant. We've seen it nine times in this short book, or we will see it nine times. It is also in the first and last verses of this book. But what does it mean? Well, obviously the term Lord speaks of deity. Jesus is Lord. He is the I Am. Jesus is his human name. Uh, You shall name him Jesus, for he shall uh, save his people from their sins. The Yeshua, the Lord saves, that's what Jesus means. And then the term Christ means anointed one. It speaks of the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. 
He is the anointed king who came to die for our sins, to suffer for the glories to follow. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the Christ. So then, they are being commanded in and by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, God who took on human flesh, who died for us, and who will reign forever and ever over all. It's a pretty large charge. Now, why this charge? Aren't the other commands by Paul given in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if not stated? Yes, they are, because all Scripture is inspired by God. But here, evidently, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, needs to up the ante in a sense, to to increase our awareness of how important obeying these commands are. This is a charge from the Lord. And I think it's the reason he needs to do it along with that is because what he's commanding them is very difficult. And I find it rarely done in the body of Christ to this extent, where someone will keep aloof from someone, allow them to be shamed in obedience to the Word of God, Rather, they figure out every other way to try and make everything right, rather than obeying God's word. And it is very difficult, but you got to know it's on the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he's your Lord, then you need to obey it. It is an important charge. And he has laid the groundwork. Hey, I know you've been obeying, and I know you will obey, so here's the charge. Here's the charge, and it is by the authority of our Lord, or in the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the command? That you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. That's really an overview because we get more specifics in the explanation and in the final command. The term keep aloof in context means to keep away, to steer clear, to avoid. One translation says withdraw, and that's a good translation. And in our passage, in a parallel portion, command later on, verse 14, notice what he says. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him. Pretty straightforward. This is a hard one because you've got to separate. And we don't want to separate because we love our brothers and sisters, but we need to love the Lord more. May the Lord direct you into his love, right? So you would obey his commands. The term associate in verse 14 means to not mix or mingle. What did Paul say concerning a sinning brother? And this is a different situation, but the separation is the same, by the way. Look at what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's turn there. He uses this word, the same word associate, by the way, that we see in verse 14, which is implied in keeping aloof in verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the situation that's going on, that there was a brother in, in great sin, and the Corinthians were arrogant about it, how they were just letting it go. Okay, and Paul has to address that. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate. That means to mix, to interact with. That's exactly what we see in our passage, right? Do not associate with immoral people. And now he's got to qualify this, 1 Corinthians I did not mean the immoral people of the world with the co- or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters. Then you'd have to go out of the world. Hey, you can't not associate with those in the world. You're going to be around. You're going to go to the store. You're going to talk with someone. You're going to pay your money. You're going to be around. You're going to go to the, the auto repair store. You're going to be around the world. So Paul says, I didn't mean, you know, be a monk. He said, but I meant not to associate with so-called brothers. And he's going to explain it. 
But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That kind of gives you an idea what not associating is, right? Now, this is an immoral person who's in great sin. Our situation is someone who is out of line. They're not immoral. They're not in great, gross sin, but they are out of step. That's why later on it'll say, uh, but treat them as a brother. Don't treat them as an enemy. Treat them as a brother, okay? So back in our passage, just to understand that idea of not associating, it means not being around. They say, hey, brother, you want to go out uh, to lunch? You say, brother... I love you, but you got to get to work. God's word says this, and you're disobeying. And so I can't go to lunch, but I love you. Hopefully you get a job. That's really what's going to happen, right? It's, it's don't associate. So back in our passage, he says here, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof, avoid withdraw from every brother. That's qualified. This is in the Lord Jesus. Not just one or two. Every single one. There probably was a couple here, by the way, in this situation. It had, got, it had spread... The thought was that there were those who had quit their jobs because they were waiting for Jesus. They were waiting for Christ. They thought he was going to return in an imminent fashion, which he is going to return in an imminent fashion, but we don't know when. And they'd quit their jobs, and then they didn't have any money, and now all of a sudden they need some food. And the body is kind of helping them out, okay? And there's this dysfunction in the body. It's not immoral gross sin, but there's a problem, And the Apostle Paul is going to explain, hey, we've shown you the right way, we've commanded you the right way, and now we're going to tell you again. And if they don't respond to your admonishment, you're going to have to separate. And it's going to shame them. And that's really what this passage is about. So then he says, everyone, you brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you keep aloof, withdraw, stay away from every brother. Speaking of believers believers he's going to say later on yet treat him as a brother these are true believers but they've got a problem and here's how we're to deal with it he says every brother and what does he keep aloof from every brother that does what who leads an unruly life the term leads or it speaks of or lives speaks of the walk the term life speaks of their walk peripateo it speaks of the way they live This is their life, and their life is unruly. Well, what does that mean? The term unruly was a military term uh, for a soldier who was out of step, who was out of rank, moving in disarray. It was more generally uh, used later on to speak of that which was out of order, out of order. It used to describe those who were insubordinate in a military context, those who were disobeying orders. And here it speaks of believers who are out of step in their walk with Jesus, in their day-to-day walk, in their life, their life. Now remember, we saw this exhortation earlier in 1 Thessalonians. Turn back in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. 5, verse 14. This is in the first first, uh, three weeks of their salvation, by the way. He says in 5.14, And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. They're out of step. They're not rebellious. They're out of step. Encourage the faint-hearted. And then, or they, are out of, they, are out of, they are rebellious in that sense. The unruly, it encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. 
They were already told to admonish those who were out of step. And again, it's not my thought in this context the way it is laid forth. And God's word needs to be laid forth in the context it's intended and applied that way by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, we become like the Pharisees applying passages like this, this, and this. You know, applying Matthew 18 here, this and that, without having God's word applied rightly to circumstances. And we'll talk about that in a minute here. But here, they're out of step. And I believe it's not speaking of those in gross immoral sin like we saw in 1 Corinthians 5. It is someone simply here who isn't working but is loafing and has become a busybody. Okay, that's what it's talking about. And it's a brother in Christ. And so how do we deal with that? So then he says here, leads an unruly life. And then what does he say? He qualifies this, uh, end of verse 6, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. The tradition which you received from us speaks of God's instruction through the Apostle Paul to these Thessalonians. It was God's word, it was laid forth when he came and spoke to them as an apostle, and also in the first letter he wrote to them, and in this letter. Here we see. He says, Keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the instruction uh, or tradition he received from us and he's going to explain that in a minute he's going to explain that notice he talks about that he says about the idea of of acting in an undisciplined manner in verse seven uh not uh that they didn't uh, eat people's bread without paying for it verse eight uh he talks about the fact that when we we're with you we we gave you this order if you won't work you won't eat right it has to do with work in this particular circumstance you see, men are to work. Men are to work. They are to provide for their families. Uh, if they don't, they're less than a, they're worse than an unbeliever, right? Got to provide, right? And it's part of the curse. We saw that. And I've shared a lot about work in our, one of the last passages I taught. But there were those in this body that seemed to be spiritually focused on Christ, but yet were disobeying in this area. They were leading an unruly life, doing no work, as we see at all but acting like busybodies we'll see that in a minute now the apostle paul had had to address this in similar fashion in the first letter and i this was read for us earlier but take a look back in chapter 4 verse 9 because what ultimately happens when believers disobey in this manner, not in, a, in an immoral manner, that's different, but in this manner, when they're out of step, it ultimately becomes a burden and is unloving on the body of Christ. Okay? And that's, that's not good. Now, as to the love of the brethren, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Now notice this. To make it your ambition to be quiet, to lead a quiet life, right? Um, and attend to your own business. Don't be a busybody. And work with your hands. Get to work. Get to work. Just as we commanded you. We've already told you this. They had an issue with this, okay? And Paul has already told them. So that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need you see if you're working you're not going to be in any need by the way if you're not working you're going to be in need right and the body's going to help if it's a genuine need right but you should get to work right and if you're not working right now then your work should be getting work right 
So here, we have these commands here. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according, not, not according to the tradition which you received from us. They were to disassociate and stay away, even to the point of shaming publicly that brother. And another thing we'll see here is that this is public sin. This is not going in private to something that you've, you've seen and you're concerned about. You've seen sin and you go to them in private, whatever it might be. This is public sin. The whole body can see that so-and-so doesn't work and he needs a sandwich, right? He's hungry, right? The whole body knows this. The whole body knows this. So then, with that in mind, I want to review just slightly how this differs from other ways that we are to address sin in the body of Christ. This is a unique way we are to address sin here, and it's laid out for us, okay? It's speaking of those out of step within the body of Christ. Remember, we saw that uh, in concerns of Matthew 18, when I taught on that, that we don't apply Matthew 18, the, the three-step process, to go in private and then bring another one, make sure every fact's confirmed, and then tell it to the church and then put them out. We don't apply that to the myriad of little sins that we do to one another that are not characterizing our lives. We don't apply that. That's, that's not right. We trip up. Love covers a multitude of sins. And if you love, you are not taking into account a wrong suffered. 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, But Matthew 18 is speaking of open, rebellious sin that one can see initially easily, right? Where the one goes in private and then brings others with facts, right? It's not presumption. It's every fact, not every presumption. But it's not speaking of those little tiny things that we do every day and we just let go because we love one another we saw another exception to matthew 18 which was galatians chapter 6 galatians chapter 6 that if a man is caught in a trespass you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness hey someone is not desiring to do evil and wrong they're caught up they got caught in it you come along gently not in matthew 18 you come along gently to, to help them get uncaught from their sin. Okay? And even in Matthew 18, we saw that the, the goal is to win them, that they would be convicted and respond and be restored with the Lord Jesus who is chasing after them his lost sheep, or not, his, his straying sheep, excuse me. So then, with that in mind, notice as we look at this passage. There we go. Got to get the right page out there. As we look at this passage, um, there's another example of some, some things that are different than this. We saw in Romans chapter 16 that we are to keep our eyes on every, uh, everyone who causes dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching, right? And turn away from them. There's no one, two, three step process because through their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That's another area, another situation. Somebody who is coming in the body, they're causing, they're causing dissensions, spot them and turn away from them. Get away, because they're going to they're gonna flatter you and try to pull you into it, right? We've seen that around here. And then we have Titus chapter 3, which is not this also, and it's not Matthew 18, where there are factious, and the leaders, in a sense, are to address the factious after two warnings and then reject them completely. Okay? Yet our passage is different. Our passage more similar, more mirrors what we see in Galatians 
chapter 2, and even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You'll remember that in Galatians chapter 2, and I won't read this, I've read this the last time we went through this in Matthew 18, but the apostle Peter was sinning publicly. He had pulled himself away from the Gentiles and was hanging out with the Jews, and he was starting to act like the way he used to be. And Peter, uh, excuse me, that was Peter, and Paul addresses him publicly. He, can, he, can, he, he, he confronts him in front of everybody. Public sin confronted in front of everybody in that context. First Thessalonians 5, we've seen it earlier. Admonish the unruly in the body of Christ. We've seen that. So here, um, in our passage, we don't have an evil moral failure. We have something that is out of step. Out of step. Out of step. So let's take a look at our passage. Notice what the Apostle Paul does at this point. He strengthens his explanation by explaining from his own example and what he has already shared with them. So he's saying, keep aloof from every brethren that leads an undisciplined life, not according to what we taught you, the word of God, right? And then notice what he says. There's an explanation for verse 7, back in our passage. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. You know. He says, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. This is an amazing portion here. The Apostle Paul uses his own example of an obedient walk in this very area to motivate them to obey the command that he has just given them. He says, for you yourselves know how we ought to follow our example. He says, you yourselves know, or literally, you, are, you, you know how you are obligated. It's literally that word. You know how you are obligated to follow our example, to mimic or imitate our walk in Jesus. You know that. You know that. And then he begins to explain what that example was, because we did not act in an un disciplined manner that's the verb form of being unruly we were not undisciplined we were not unruly you know that guys right he says here disciplined manner that's in verse seven among you you know that and he continues notice this nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it hey you guys know we worked and we ate our own bread and if we ate someone else's we paid for it you saw that example, and you know you ought to do the same thing. You ought to walk in that also. That's what he's saying. In middle verse 8, But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. That's love. That's love. That's thinking of others is more important than yourself. We might not be a burden. And notice Paul didn't have to do that, by the way. Verse 9, Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. Paul understood they had a difficulty here. He had already taught them on it, and so he was modeling the right way for them, although he didn't have to as an apostle. We'll talk about that. The apostle Paul has shared in other places, and we'll look at it, that God, the Lord, has declared that those who, who share the gospel should get their living from the gospel. And Paul's going to talk about that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. See, the Apostle Paul had the right not to work. But he loved them, 
And he didn't want to hinder them, as we're going to see, because they had this issue. So he wanted to be a model for them. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I can't read the whole thing, but I'm going to read, read uh, a lot of it here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 3. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right, speaking of apostles, to, to take along a believing wife? even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have the right to refrain from working? Listen to that. Okay. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or who tends of a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking of these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law also say these things? For it is written, or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to share in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. And if we sowed spiritual things in you, is If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right. Listen to what he said. We didn't use this right. The right was to to have material uh, substance from them because he was sharing the spiritual things. He says, Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all, endure all things, that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred service eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly in the altar have their share of the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel, but I have used none of these things. The reality is that is where they are to get their living. And Paul will get his living from that, but not from those in whom it would stumble him doing so in that moment. We're going to see in a moment, he received gifts from the Philippians while he was in Thessalonica for his needs, yet he didn't take anything from the Thessalonians, and he worked day and night as an example for them because they had this issue. Galatians chapter 6, and let the one who has taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. Guess what? He goes on and says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for what a man sows he'll reap. That's the context, by the way, right? What did Paul share with Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 5. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor. This is talking about paycheck, by the way. Um, but double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Those are those elders who also preach and teach. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Those are those passages that Paul used earlier to show that uh, the Lord has ordained that those who share the gospel get their living from the gospel. But Paul was very careful. He had the right to gain support from the Thessalonians, but he did not do it. And so as an example, he showed them how they ought to live by working hard day and night in their presence so that they, so that he would not be a burden to any of them because they had that issue, you see? 
But as I mentioned, it's interesting that even while he was doing that, at that time, the Philippians sent a gift for him. I'll share this. Philippians uh, chapter 4. And you yourselves know, verse 15, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I departed Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So he didn't even need to work. He did it as an example to them so that they would work and not be a burden. He didn't need to. He received a gift from the Philippians that supplied all his needs. The reality is the Apostle Paul was concerned about where they were spiritually. And they had this issue. And he says, hey, look back at my example that you ought to follow that we did for you. And that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. He says, not because back in our passage, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8, or verse 9, not because we have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. What a good guy in the Lord. What a good guy in the Lord. He cared for them, didn't want to be a burden. He knew they had this issue and he, he worked day and night, though he didn't need to, to be an example to them that he wouldn't be a burden so that they would not be a burden. And notice now, after with that, he now reminds them of his previous command. Okay, here's my example, Thessalonians. And then he reminds them of his previous command. Notice what he says here in verse 10. For even while we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. He was with them for three weeks after they came to faith, and he spotted their issues right away. He said, even when we're with you, we were with you. We said, if anyone will not work, if they're unwilling to work, then let him not eat. Pretty straightforward, right? Folks, this is so ignored in the good works evangelical Christian churches. And as we will see, it is very damaging to those who are out of step. Because it is not God's will for us to feed those who are unwilling to work. If they're unwilling to work, neither let them eat. That's what God says. It is God's will for us to turn away from them when they're unwilling so that they will be shamed and not a burden on the body of Christ and get back to work. That's how God does things. It's so contrary to how we want to do things with people in those circumstances. So then, having explained his motivation based on his previous commands, he now gives another reason why he's increasing the seriousness of this command. He's heard some news, and it's disturbing news, folks. Verse 10 or 11. For we hear some among you are leading an undisciplined life. An undisciplined life. He says here, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Ouch. Ouch. Right? We've heard it. We've heard there's some in the body here of believers. They're leading and living a life that is undisciplined. How so? They're doing no work at all. That's the issue. That's the issue. It's not gross immoral sin. They're out of step. They're out of step. Their life is out of step with Christ and his ways, and it is obvious to everyone, and Paul has heard about it. 
And if you're honest, it's, if you're out of work and you're not willing to work, then it's going to be obvious to everyone else, unless you're dishonest and hiding that, by the way. So here, the Thessalonians knew it. You could see it. There were some doing no work of all, but notice what happens. One sin leads to another, by the way, but acting like busybodies. You know what? Uh, it's not scripture, but time on your hands is the devil's workshop. I'm not sure how that goes, but it's true. Okay? It's very biblical, and we'll see that here in the concept is what we see here. It's not good. The word translated busybodies speaks of being busy uselessly. <laughs> That's what it means literally. Being occupied with trifling matters. And it came to speak of the idea of meddling in other people's business. Meddling in other people's business. You see, when we are not about where God has designed us to be, such as men working, we get in trouble. When we are not in the roles that God has designed us to be, we get in trouble. You see, if you're not working, man, that's a bad thing. You've got too much time on your hands. You've got too much time on your hands. You've got all kinds of time to think about everyone else and how to deal with their lives and their issues, right? Not good. Let me share an example from those of young widows. Turn to 1 Timothy 5. You see, there was the list in the church, and there were widows. If they were, if they were, if they were a certain age, they would be put on the list. If they were godly and had been godly and were godly, they would be put on the list for the church to take care of them. And then there were some younger widows that, that uh, had uh, made a pledge, hey, I'm not going to get remarried, I'm going to serve the Lord, or whatever it might be. But they didn't have the gift of singleness. And so there was some problem of them being out of their role. 1 Timothy 5 Verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married. These are obviously those who don't have the gift of singleness, by the way, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. They basically said after they got, you know, their husband died, hey, I'm not going to get you married, I'm going to serve Christ, right? But so here, and at the same time, notice this, they learn, also learn to be idle, not a good thing. As they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for approach, for some have already turned aside to serve to follow Satan. When you are out of your role, you've got too much time in your hands. And you will eventually, in the body of Christ, probably become a gossip or a busybody. Get to your proper roles. And so what happened here was they were doing no work at all, but back in our passage, but were acting like busybodies. And that's a problem. That's a problem. So get in your right role so that you don't have too much time on your hands. Stop sitting but if you do, if you're in the wrong role, I guarantee you're going to start uh, being a busybody. You're going to you're too, too much time in your hands. Not good. So then, Apostle Paul says, turn away, stay away, keep aloof from those who are not working, the unruly, and everyone, you're all to turn away from every single one of them. Sounds difficult, but that's what God says. So now the Apostle Paul gives these uh, unruly one last exhortation. Now, verse 12, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Pretty straightforward, right? 
we command in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ through us, that these commands are coming forth. I don't think it can get any stronger. We, we charge you and exhort you to do what? To work in a quiet fashion. Work with your mouth shut in a quiet fashion. We saw that back in 1 Thessalonians. To, to lead a quiet life. Make it your ambition to be quiet. Make it your ambition. If you're a talker, make it your ambition to be quiet because your words are going to get you in trouble. Okay? Make it your ambition to be quiet. And so here, to work quietly in a sense, quiet fashion, and then notice, eat their own bread. Earn your own wages and eat your own bread. That's what we command you. That is the command, the unruly. That's what you got to do. Pretty simple fix, isn't it? Pretty simple. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. And now notice what we see here. He now gives commands for the brethren. And guess what? We need to have these because if you're an obedient servant of Jesus and you do what God says in the right heart from from his spirit in you, it's going to be difficult. There's nothing more difficult than saying, brother, I can't hang out with you. I can't come over for dinner until you get a job. God's word says you're to work and you're not working. And I love you and I care for you, but I got to go. That's difficult. You love them. They're not your enemy. They're your brother and sister in Christ. But you got to do what's right. And so God says this. He says this. But as for you, verse 13, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary. It can, it can, it can cause you to be uh, uh, troubled. The word means to lose heart. Do good. It's the right thing to do. Do the right thing. It's good to admonish a brother who's unruly, and it's good to turn away from them and to not associate with them. These are actually good things. We think it's bad because our relationship is temporarily broken. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because we want them, as we will see, to be shamed. Shamed by the whole body. So that they will repent and get to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. These principles go a long way for a lot of different issues, by the way. So then, notice what he says here at this point. Verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter. What was the instruction? Get to work in a quiet fashion. um, Eat your own bread. That's it. Right? That summarizes all the instruction, right? Same thing. If anyone won't work, let him not eat. Right? Now it's like get to work. Okay? What are they supposed to do if they don't obey? You see, they have a chance. They're going to admonish. They're going to admonish. Hey, brother, God's word says this. Go get to get a job. Okay? Now, if they don't obey, what do we do? This is now kind of a more succinct uh, uh, command here. If anyone was not obey our instructions letter... Take special note of that man. Notice he says man, not woman. Men of the wanted to be working. Take special note. The word means to publicly identify, to mark out in writing. Identify them. The one that's not working. Mark it down. And then what does he say? He says take special note and do not associate with him. Sounds harsh. It's God's way, not my way. Do it. It's the commands for the body. Do it. 
If this situation arises, do what God says. If they don't respond to the word of God in admonishing them, then take special note and don't associate. And notice he gives a reason. This is what God does when we obey him. So that he may be put to shame. Put to shame. That the brother might recognize their sinfulness. The body is, is, is separating, although they love the person. They're saying, no, get to work. We can't, we can't be around you. We can't associate while you are in disobedience. So they'd be shamed. They'd be shamed. And you know what? If everybody in the body is obeying and turning away, those who are disobeying like that, then there's going to be shame. And hopefully that shame will cause them to repent and get right with the Lord. That's how God does it. That's what God does. We always want to say, well, we'll just work with this. We'll just, no, obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. But notice what he says. And yet do not regard him as an enemy. This is not putting him out as a non-believer, Matthew 18. It's different. Matthew 18 says, treat them as a Gentile tax gatherer. Here he's saying, hey, this is still a brother. Right? This is a unique situation where they're not engrossed in, but they're out of step. Right? He says here, and do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You see, they're misled. And they need to, they stopped working most likely for a good reason. They're overzealous, doctrinally speaking. And they become busybodies. And they need to get to work quietly and not eat other people's bread. He says, admonish as a brother. The word means to put into the mind. It means to warn, to instruct. It speaks of addressing things that need to be corrected. And Paul said in Romans 15 that we are full of goodness and all knowledge and able to admonish one another. We're able to do it. So then, we need to admonish here. And if they don't respond, we need to keep aloof from every brother that leads an unruly life so that they would be shamed. And that's how we deal with those who are unruly in the body of Christ. Are you willing to obedient, be obedient in all things? It's really hard when they're family members, right? Certainly you're still going to be family. That doesn't go away. But you're just not going to associate the way you did before. And you're going to share why. You're going to want to say, I love you. But I can't do that with you. I can't go to church with you and hang out with you. Because you're disobedient and God wants you to get back to work. That's what he says. So then how we deal with the unruly? We see loving admonishment with the word of God and a separation that shames so that the brother who is not our enemy would get right with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and within it we see your heart to restore, Lord God, but yet your holiness that you cannot uh, put up with sin and you don't. And that you love us, Lord God, and you're gracious and kind. And Father, I just pray that we would take these truths to heart and that we would apply them appropriately when the situations arise so that those who are out of step would be admonished and that they would be restored. And if need be, there would be the separation in love, uh, Lord, that they would be shamed and ultimately restored. We pray for that, Lord God. So, Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this, this, this exhortation to us and this charge. 
in your son's precious name. Amen.